All righty. So my message this morning is about a very important court case. Court case. One with which I'm sure you are all quite familiar, okay? That case is the trial of the Apostle Paul in Caesarea Maritima under the Roman governor Porcius Festus, all right? Who could forget that case? Everyone is talking about that case, right? Well, all jokes aside, it is amazing, uh, striking, sobering that this weekend I get to talk about justice. Justice. Now, justice, when I say the word justice, what I don't mean is judgment, vengeance, recompense, things like that. What I don't mean is the evildoer getting what is due to him or her. It's not what I mean. When I say justice, what I mean is equity, fairness, righteousness, as it's sometimes translated in the Bible. Now, justice, as you may know, is all over the Christian Bible. It's all over, specifically, the Old Testament. Now, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is often called a just God, a champion of justice. And his people, Israel, his chosen people, are commanded to themselves be just. We think of the book of Deuteronomy, in the law, we think of the Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, the famous justice prophets like Amos, Micah. Justice is all over the place, but justice in the Old Testament primarily has to do with right treatment of all people, especially in that context, the weak, the powerless, the exiled, the widowed, the orphan, and so on. God's justice in the Bible often has to do with his looking after, being concerned with the welfare of the marginalized, the disadvantaged, the oppressed. And so when we talk about justice this morning, that is what I mean. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, I don't even know if you have to have read the Old Testament to know this, but the Israelites, God's chosen people, failed to embody true justice. And I think this comes to the fore for us in Acts chapter 25. In Acts 25, we see injustice, corruption. We see it in the form of collusion, greed, bribery, deceit, dishonesty, leaders trying to take advantage of people below them. We see this among the Romans, the Gentile Roman leaders, yes, but even more so, even more strikingly so, we see it among the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem in Acts 25. In this text, which we'll read in a moment, the Jews are in league with the Romans, and together they deny justice to the Apostle Paul. Now Paul, though, Paul knows justice. Paul has seen true justice in the flesh. 
And so in this text, Paul exposes, he exposes the injustice of his captors, and he appeals ultimately to a justice that is higher. I would say higher than the justice of Caesar, and that is the justice of Jesus Christ. So in this text, what I'd like to argue, I guess, is that justice, true justice, cannot be found in all the earth. It can't. But that it can be found in only one place, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to do this morning, is talk about justice, specifically as it's highlighted for us in Acts 25. But Before we do that, let's take a moment to pray, because we need God's help. Lord, it is a sobering privilege to stand here this morning and speak about justice, one of those key, iconic words, themes in the Bible with things like glory, love, righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, that you'd soften our hearts, that you would present yourself to us, the living Christ, the true character of God, that you would present yourself to us through your word this morning. And don't let us leave unchanged. We love you and pray that uh, you'd give us patience, that you'd make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, before Acts chapter 25 is Acts 24, <laughs> uh, and Mike preached on chapter 24 last week. Um, he, he went through a lot of the details, so I don't want to go through those this morning, but I do want to note especially uh, instances of injustice and corruption, even in chapter 24. So to kind of get us up to speed, the Apostle Paul had gone to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and in Jerusalem... He was uh, seized and arrested by the Jews there, and they claimed that he had abandoned the law of Moses, that he had defiled the temple, and so he's ultimately held in custody by the Romans, Um, but they transfer him, they transfer him from Jerusalem to the political capital of the region, which was Caesarea, Caesarea, the city of Caesar. Uh, And so Paul is there in Caesarea, and the Chief priest Ananias comes from Jerusalem to bring charges against Paul. And so Ananias speaks through a spokesperson, Tertullus is the guy's name. And you don't have to turn here, but this is uh, verse 2 of chapter 24. Uh, There we see this kind of flowery, obsequious, fawning language where Ananias, the chief priest, is just praising the Roman governor Felix, for all of these things that he's done for their nation. And he's clearly trying to curry favor with this politician. Now, it stands out to me because if you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, you'll see that relations between the Jews and Felix were not good at all. (laughs) And so for Ananias to praise this Roman governor and and to claim that he is so beneficent and worthy of, of glory uh, is actually not reflective of historical reality. I think what's going on is the chief priest is, is flattering this politician, currying favor with him so that 
his ends would be met through him. And he, of course, Ananias, is trying to condemn the Apostle Paul. So first then we see flattery, a sort of currying of favor between political leaders so that one would do something for the other. And this is flattery from the chief priest. Now jumping toward the end of the chapter, uh, Paul has a chance to defend himself and he does so. And then Felix kind of keeps Paul around. He keeps Paul in jail, even though there's no weight to the accusations against him. And it says in verse 26 of chapter 24 that Felix was hoping that Paul would offer him money. So a bribe, greed, we see here. We've got flattery on the side of the Jewish leaders, and we have greed on the side of the Romans. And lastly, in verse 27, you could call this ingratiation. Um, Felix wants to do the Jews a favor so that they would do him a favor someday. And that favor is that he keeps Paul in jail for two years after he vacates the office of governor. And so as we get to chapter 25, we see a transfer of leadership. No longer Felix, but Festus. And I, I promise you this morning, I will, uh, I will mix up those names. Uh, and it really doesn't matter because we're, we're talking about corruption and they're kind of the same character. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 25? Uh, the passage will begin at verse 1 and it can be found on page 934 of the Bible there in the pew. And so that version is the English Standard Version, and that's what I'll be reading from this morning. And so Acts 25, starting at verse 1. Now, three days after Festus, the new governor, had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you, go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Well, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one 
No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. Mm. This is a significant text. Weird to say that about a biblical passage. This is the immediate cause, friends, of Paul's journey to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, a journey that Jesus said that Paul would embark on. At Rome, as we know, Paul would meet his end, and that journey will occupy us for about the rest of our series in Acts. So what I'd like to do for us over the next few minutes is walk through this passage, uh, particularly noting instances of injustice or corruption in this text. If we jump right in then at verse 1, we see that a transfer of leadership has taken place, a transition, you could say. The governor before was Felix, and his office is now occupied by Festus, Porcius Festus. And it says, Festus, this is the word order in the Greek, after arriving in the province, three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Three days later. Now, think about a time when you've, you know, taken a job or something or moved to another state. I can remember, you know, when I started this job, and I think it was October, early October 2nd or something when we moved, but I didn't start the job until like the 12th, and I live a block away. I needed some time to, you know, settle in, to get the lay of the land, to kind of let the dust settle a little bit. Luke takes pains to tell us that Festus had a sense of urgency, okay? He, he arrives at his new home, his new office in Caesarea, and it says three days later, three days, not even a week, he travels to Jerusalem, the ancient religious capital of the region, to establish some sort of network, some sort of relationship with the Jewish leaders there. We can see that a sense of urgency is evoked in the very beginning of this passage. Things are done quickly. We get to verse 2, and it says that upon the arrival, basically, of this Roman governor, the new guy, the chief priests and the authorities among the Jews brought charges against Paul to him. There's, There's a sense of urgency here, too. They kind of pounce on this young, new governor, and immediately they try to reactivate a case against Paul that had lied dormant for two years. So, urgency on both sides. Now, it says in the ESV that after they laid out their case against Paul, they urged him. They urged him, that's what it says. Now, this this verb urge is in the imperfect tense, in Greek, which signifies uh, progressive, continuous, repeated action. So this could be translated, they were urging him. They kept on urging him. They wouldn't stop annoyingly urging him, reminding him about this case. That's the force of the verb. And then we get a curious phrase at the beginning of verse 3, a phrase that should sound familiar. They asked as a favor against Paul. 
that he summoned him to Jerusalem. Asking as a favor. Where did we hear that language? Felix, before. So the Caesarea is the political capital of the region where Festus' office is, and he's come to Jerusalem to visit with the chief priests, but they want him to summon Paul into their turf to have him tried there. Why? Why? Somehow we get a scoop into the motives, the inner motives of the Jewish leaders. It says in verse 3, they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. As Paul journeyed to Jerusalem, they, they wanted to waylay him, mob, ambush him, lynch him, as some commentators write. Now, this is not the first time that such an ambush had been plotted in the book of Acts against Paul. Before, in chapter 23, you may remember these 40 oath-swearers. They swore not to eat food until Paul was dead. And the Jewish leaders hear about it, and they, you know, kind of support it. Here, though, the plot is hatched by the Jewish leaders themselves. How far they have strayed from justice. Justice. Well, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that if you want to try him, you can go there. So it seems like, at least at first, this new Roman governor is uh, following due legal procedure. He seems like an upstanding guy. He says, let the men of authority basically go to Caesarea with me. I'm about to go back there shortly. Uh, come, and if there's anything wrong, this word wrong is really a legal term. If there's any guilt in the man, if, if there's anything deserving of punishment, of condemnation then point it out. Formally accuse him, and he will be condemned. So, that's the plan. And we get in verse 6, the second section of the passage. It says that he stayed among them in Jerusalem for not more than eight or ten days. Interesting stylistic edition of Luke. And then they went down to Caesarea together, and on the next day, on the next day, he sits on his judicial bench, and commands for Paul to be brought. Here we get another note of urgency in the matter, which is striking because Paul had been languishing in prison for two years, and nothing had been done. Felix was waiting for Paul to offer him money or a bribe. Two years. And when this new guy gets the job, we get urgency, urgency, urgency. So this begins the trial of Paul, in Caesarea, over which the Roman governor Festus presides. And verse 7 lays out the scene in vivid, almost chilling detail. Try to picture the scene as it's described with these vivid words. Try to imagine yourself in Paul's shoes or sandals or something. Verse 7. When he arrived, when Paul arrived, that is, there stood around him the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem. Stood around him, looking at him. And they were bringing 
Present tense, this is continuous action. They were bringing, they kept bringing, they were piling on many serious accusations which they could not prove no matter how hard they tried. That last word, could not prove, again is in the imperfect tense. This is continuous attempts to substantiate their claims. They're surrounding Paul, his brethren, probably his classmates from rabbinical training in Jerusalem, standing around him before a Roman governor, casting charges at him repeatedly that they could not prove. Imagine what Paul is feeling. Imagine what he's thinking at this point. Luckily, he has a chance to defend himself. And the word here is apologu, which is apologia, apologetics. That's where we get that word. He defends himself, and he says that neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned or committed any wrong. Now, he had been accused of abandoning the law of Moses and teaching such abandonment, as well as defiling the temple, bringing a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem. And he responds to these charges, but, but we get a third, a, a new one here. He says, neither against Caesar have I committed any wrong. So he's in Caesarea, the city of Caesar, before a Roman governor, surrounded by his Jewish peers. And he says, I have done no wrong to Caesar. The ante has been upped, you could say. <laughs> well, then we get our boy Festus. <laughs> Festus, we shouldn't have let off the hook so quickly. Because in verse 9 it says that he wished to do the Jews a favor, like his predecessor Felix. And so he says, do you wish, Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? And there be tried on these things before me. Now, Paul knows the Roman law. He knows his rights. And he knows that an attempt on his life had been made a couple chapters, but years ago in his mind. He suspects, you could say, funny business, technical term, at this point in the story, all right? He says in verse 10, I stand, I myself currently stand, just emphatic piling up of language in the Greek. I stand right now at the bema seat, the judicial bench, the courtroom of Caesar, where it is necessary for me to be tried. Paul, the Jewish Paul, is preferring the justice of Rome over the justice of of the Jewish Sanhedrin from Jerusalem. Oh, how far they have come from justice. He goes on and says, against the Jews I have committed no wrong. You could translate this, I have committed no injustice, literally, against the Jews. As you yourself, Festus, surely know. Paul sees right through this guy. He knows what he is trying to do. He knows what the Jews are trying to do. And he says, if I've done anything worthy of death, 
Really? I'm not trying to get out of the death penalty. I'm not. But if there is no weight to these accusations, if these claims cannot be substantiated, then no one, not even you, Festus, no one has the power to hand me over to them, to hand me over as a favor to them. That verb in Greek is the same root as the word favor, to do a favor for someone. Paul sees what they're trying to do, using him as a pawn to advance their political advantages and purposes. But he knows the Roman law, and he says, I am not your favor. You can't give me as a favor, as an object to the Jews. I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. Now, historians, biblical scholars have tried to find a parallel in this period of other people appealing directly to Caesar. Now, there's literature that shows us that it, it was within a Roman citizen's rights to do this, but there, there are no parallels that perfectly match what Paul does. That's not to say this didn't happen. That's to say this was rare. This was exceptional. Paul was basically saying, I am being tried before an incompetent tribunal. And so I appeal to a justice that is higher. There are actual terms in Latin for what he's doing here. And we can't find direct parallels, which shows us the gravity of this situation. Paul appeals to the highest court in the land. Well, then Festus discusses with his counselors what just happened and ultimately concludes, to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. And so marks the sort of beginning of Paul's journey to Rome, which will take us to the end of the book of Acts. So that's our passage, 12 verses in Acts 25. And before it, we saw something similar, and even after, we'll see something similar. As we look through this text, as we review it, we see evidence of injustice and corruption on both sides. We see the, the Jews asking for a favor, a favor that they would have to return, but they were, to, they were going to circumvent justice and literally ambush Paul as he's traveling to Jerusalem. Festus says no at first, but later on finds an opportune time to make it seem like a benefit to Paul to transfer the hearing to Jerusalem. But Paul sees right through him, and he appeals to a justice that is higher. But let me say this. Although Paul appeals to Caesar, I do not think for a second that Paul expects justice there. He doesn't. There are clues all over the text that Paul doesn't expect to be acquitted in Rome. He's been told to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's been told by Jesus himself to bear witness about him in Rome. Paul's going to Rome not to win the trial, not to find justice, but to bear witness every step of the way, to bear witness to a justice that is higher 
higher even than Caesar. So like I said before, justice, true justice, cannot be found in all the earth. I think Paul would agree. It can be found in one place, in one place only, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, revealed His justice, His equity, His fairness, His treatment, beneficent treatment of others, he revealed his justice in one decisive move. That is, in the life, death, and resurrection of a person, Jesus of Nazareth. God's divine justice, I would argue, is the complete opposite of human corruption. Complete opposite. Where human corruption colludes, God's justice forgives. Where human corruption deceives, God's justice assists. Where human corruption lies, God's justice speaks truth. And where human corruption destroys, God's justice brings life. Life. Our understanding of what justice is is completely redefined in the person of Jesus. What was once associated with punishment or judgment, guilt, is now associated with release, with forgiveness, with grace. Something that was once associated with death, persecution, mistreatment, is now associated with bliss, with contentment, even life, life. As followers of Jesus, then, We know, we should know what is true justice. What we must do then, like Paul, is bear witness. Is bear witness to the justice of Christ. Now, one very practical way we can do this. This is reaching back in the news to last week. We celebrated Juneteenth. One practical way I think we can do this is to fight for racial justice in America. Like the Apostle Paul, who didn't expect to find justice in Rome, though, not to be pessimistic, but on this side of heaven, you could say, before Jesus' return, I don't think we will find true racial justice on earth, no matter how hard we try. We need to fight for racial justice, though, not necessarily to win, but to testify to the justice that will win, the justice of Jesus Christ. Like I said, Paul's going to Rome, but not to find justice. It is to bear witness to justice every step of the way. Through his death at the hands of Caesar Nero, it's to bear witness to the justice of Jesus. We as Christians absolutely need to fight for racial justice, for the just treatment of African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and many others. But I don't think that we will win without Jesus. We won't. We need to fight, but our fight itself is to bear witness 
to a justice that will win, that will completely win out someday. Paul, as you may know, would meet his end in Rome. He would not find justice there. But the ministry, the testimony, the gospel proclamation that he does from this moment to that one is truly remarkable, friends. (laughs) Truly remarkable. As witnesses of true justice, then, let us join with Jesus today, today, in embodying the justice of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Would you pray with me?